So the uh, reading this morning is from Mark chapter 1, and it's verses 35 to 45 in the NIV. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So we traveled through Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged on, on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Thanks, Neil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you for its relevance into each of our lives. Thank you for the way in which you've spoken to people over the last 2,000 years through your word, by your spirit. And wherever we are psychologically or emotionally or spiritually this morning, we pray that we might hear your voice speaking to us now. Would you breathe life? Would you breathe refreshment? into our souls and our spirits and our minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Libby mentioned and we heard read, we're continuing our series looking at the Gospel of Mark. And as we said in previous weeks, Mark is, if you like, the sort of tabloid gospel. It goes through at a breakneck speed, very quickly. Everything is at once and then as soon as, and everything sort of happens really quickly. But the incident that we're going to focus on this morning is a bit different because at its heart is perhaps the most profound question or one of the most profound questions that we can ever ask. And the question is that, what speed is God? When you think about God, what speed do you think God goes at? Just turn to the person next to you. 10 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, maybe Mach 2, whatever it is, just turn and say what you think, what speed God goes at. Maybe it's a question that you've never thought of before.
Okay, what are the numbers that people are hearing? Not that that's what you said, but what are you hearing? Anybody brave enough to shout out the numbers? Who? Snail's pace? Infinite? If you're everywhere, how can you even move? Oh, Zach Nisbet, our drummer for this morning. If you're everywhere, how can you really move? How do you be somewhere where you're not? Oh, this is getting a bit deep. Certainly for 10.31. To infinity and beyond. Thank you, Buzz Lightyear in row three. To infinity and beyond. But it's an interesting question, is it? What speed do we think God moves at? I remember when I was praying for something for, for a while, and I asked a friend, they said, it hasn't happened yet. And they looked at me with sort of wise eyes and said, but God is never late. And I wanted to punch them. But, you know, there's an essence into which that is true. But there's also a reality that as a society, we can move faster and further than any society or culture that has ever existed before. And when we talk about science fiction, we talked about infinity and beyond. We talk about going at warp speed. We talk about going faster than the speed of light, faster than the speed of sound. And in our society and in our culture, things that are fast are valued and praised, whether it's on the sports field, whether it's in the boardroom. People are encouraged to move faster. Food is apparently good because it's fast. Well, at least that is a, perhaps the only quality that fast food has. It's fast, and therefore people think it's good. But the paradox is that even though we can move faster and further and more quickly than any other culture or society in the whole of history up to now, the reality is that we are not a society and a culture that is any happier than previous societies. And indeed, some people in our culture and in our society are deliberately slowing down because they recognize that the pace that they are living their lives at is not a good one. Listen to the words of a Japanese theologian, I think the first Japanese theologian that I have ever quoted uh, to my shame. A guy called Kasumi Koyama, he says this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would move much faster. Love has its speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed. It's slow and yet it is Lord over all the other speeds, since it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depths of our life, whether we notice it or not. And it's quite a striking thought. He um, expounds that theory in his book, The Three Mile an Hour God. So Kasumi Kayama says that God actually moves at the speed of three miles an hour. And it was fascinating when I was starting to do some of my studies last year that one of the people thinking about the early church when um, they were saying, how did the early church be so resilient and successful in the face of persecution in the Roman Empire? 
the thing that they cultivated was patience. That they were able to live life slowly, and therefore they could endure persecution, they could endure even martyrdom, because as a community of faith, the fruit of the Spirit that they had cultivated amongst all the things, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, the one thing that they had cultivated and taught each other was patience. And if ever there was something in our society that is needed, now perhaps more than ever, it is the idea of patience. How many of us, if we're local to Edinburgh, are just breathing a sigh of relief for next week? Because all those festival goers, all those tourists, all those people who were on our buses, all those people who were on the pavements. Do you remember pre-COVID, there was even this idea of having a sort of pavement lane for locals and a pavement lane for tourists so that the tourists could go very slowly, interesting, and, the, and those of us who live here, we could go fast because fast was good. But actually, patience is something that is needed. And when you read through the lists that Paul has in the New Testament of the fruit, the characteristics of God, the fruit of the Spirit, it's funny how often patience occurs and how often patience actually comes at the end as if it's the peak, as if it's the thing to aspire to. If you look back at the previous few verses to those that Neil read for us today. It has been quite a 24 hours in the life of Jesus. Arriving in Capernaum, Jesus went, we're told, to the synagogue, and he begins to teach there. The people listening to him were amazed because they said Jesus had authority. They weren't used to that. And suddenly a man who was demonized shouted out, verse 24, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus is teaching, and suddenly in the middle of his talk, somebody stands up, probably someone like Neil Kempsell, demonized, and uh, stands up and shouts out and says, what do you want with us, Jesus, most high son of God? Have you come to destroy us? And everyone in the synagogue looked like you look now, because they went, well, that wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't part of Jesus' talk. And Jesus deals with the man with no hype, no background Holy Spirit synth music. He just says, come out of him, be quiet, as if he's talking to a small child or a puppy who is misbehaving. That's the way Jesus deals with evil spirits. Be quiet, come out of him. The evil spirit shakes the man and comes out of the man. And again, the people witnessing this are amazed and news about Jesus begins to spread across Galilee. After preaching, after dealing with a demonized man, Jesus probably is hungry, and therefore he goes to the home of one of his followers that he's just brought into his inner circle, Simon, who's becoming Simon Peter later on, and he goes to Simon's house. They tell Jesus that Simon's mum, mother-in-law, is ill. Jesus thinks there's no rest for the wicked or for the perfect, and he goes and he heals Jesus, uh, Simon's mother-in-law, and then he, and then he, I mean, just, it's remarkable what happens next is that, so he went to her, the mother-in-law, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. How'd you like that? You've just been healed of a fever, 
You've met the Messiah, the Son of God. Oh, by the way, can you keep serving the meals? Because that's your job. And the woman has to get up and start to serve the disciples and Jesus. That evening after sunset, that is, at the start of the next day, in the Jewish calendar, the day begins with sunset, not sunrise. So they, they be, Jesus has been teaching in the Sabbath. Sunset comes... The next day begins at sunset. Think about creation in Genesis 1. It was evening and it was morning the first day. In Jewish thinking, the day begins with the night before. Might transform how we think about what we do the night before because that's when the day begins and it affects how we live for the next 24 hours. But at evening, when the sun had set, that's when the people, because they're allowed to now, because it's not the Sabbath, they bring their sick. They bring their demonized to Jesus. The whole town, we're told, gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The house now is surrounded. Everybody goes back home, perhaps, or maybe because they don't want to miss out, they actually just go to sleep where they are, surrounding the house of Simon. Everybody is on edge. Everyone's excited. It's a bit like Christmas Eve, only it's Capernaum Eve. It's a bit like Christmas Eve, but Jesus is asleep in your house. That's what the feeling is like in the, in the town. That's what the feeling is like in the house. Something is going to happen. What will the next day hold? What will sunrise bring? What more miracles will Jesus do? What new teaching will Jesus bring? What are they going to see? What are they going to hear? There's an air of excitement as people go to sleep. But then what happens next is very significant and is the first of two paradoxes that we're going to look at this morning. We're told in verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. And we see this paradox because we, what we see in verse 35, and it only occurs in Mark's gospel three times, is Jesus praying. And we have this paradox. God prays. Now, if you think about those two words, they don't make sense together. Divine beings don't need to pray because they're God. Human beings, creatures, we need to pray. But gods, or God, doesn't, don't need to pray because they're God. We've seen Jesus casting out demons, being identified by the demon as the most holy one of God. They know who he is. Jesus, in driving out the other demons, doesn't let them speak because they know who Jesus is. Jesus is the most holy one of God. He is the Messiah. He's God's anointed. He is God. He's doing things that only God can do, driving out demons. And yet now, God 
praise. It's a very human thing to do. Just after we've seen him doing the most divine things. And we have this paradox of Jesus who is fully divine, but also fully human. And the word that's used to describe, describe the place where he goes to pray is significant. In the NIV, it's translated as solitary place. The Greek word is eremos, and that word literally meant wilderness. The wilderness was the place where John the Baptist had appeared preaching. The wilderness was the place where Jesus had been tempted. The wilderness had echoes of the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt under Moses when they had disobeyed God and had to go for an extra 40 years in the wilderness, where it had been a place of repentance and restoration and meeting with God. And that's the place in the wilderness where Jesus goes to. I don't know about you, but I always think of the wilderness as a place where God isn't. God is at places like magnitude. God is at places like new wine. God is, for me, in the middle of a worship service, in the middle of amazing music and a worship time. Or perhaps in, in the middle, it might be a different pathway for you. It might be in the middle of a place of creation. It might have been uh, the majesty of a loch or a mountain or a munro or somewhere, some place where you connect with God. And that is definitely not a wilderness place. Wilderness sums up for me or evokes for me pictures of the absence of God, of dryness, of God not being there. But that's precisely the place where Jesus goes to meet with his heavenly Father in verse 35 of Mark's gospel, chapter 1. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a solitary place. And the sense is that that is a place where Jesus often used to go. That's where when the disciples start looking for him, they're able to find him fairly quickly because they know it's the place where Jesus normally went. I wonder if you, at the moment, feel as though you are in a place of wilderness. Situations and circumstances are happening to you or to people that you know, and you feel as though God has abandoned you. You feel as though God has left you. You feel as though God has let you down. Maybe because you haven't been putting much effort into your relationship with God, it feels as though you're in the wilderness. Maybe because of a repeated action, a deliberate sin, something that you know you shouldn't do, but you are choosing to do repeatedly, you sense as though you're in a time of wilderness or a place of wilderness. Let me encourage you this morning with the realization that the wilderness is a place where the people of God met with God so that they were then ready, prepared to go into the promised land. Forty years later than God had originally planned, 
but restored, refreshed. And maybe this place of wilderness for you can be a place where you meet God in a new way, in a deeper way, in a profound way, where stripped perhaps of some of the things that you've taken for granted, some of the old ways that used to help you get to know God and sense God's presence, you can discover God in a new way, in a fresh way, in a richer way. Jesus gets up, goes to a solitary place, the wilderness, and that's where he meets God. Mark only describes Jesus as praying three times, as I say. One here, one after the feeding of the 5,000, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane. Each time it occurs in darkness, and each time there's opposition, direct or implied. Tom Wright puts it this way. It's only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up with God. It's only when we slow down our lives that we can catch up with God. Jesus needed to slow down. He needed to spend time with his heavenly Father, and he was God's Son. So if Jesus needed to slow down and spend time with his heavenly Father, why do we think that we don't need to do that? If Jesus needed to do it, why do we think we don't? As I say, Mark's gospel is very fast-paced on one level. But actually, if you read in between the verses, in between the as soon as, there were days when Jesus walked from one place to another. There was lots of time for walking and talking. Some people have speculated that the disciples were actually all teenagers and actually explains why they acted and said some of the things that they did. They appear a bit goofy at times. But there was lots of time for slowing. There was lots of times when Jesus perhaps felt overwhelmed. I'll never forget as a, I think it was about 13, 14, seeing the film of Jesus Christ Superstar where in one of the songs, Jesus is literally overcome by people who were demonized and sick and and leprosy, and he's just swamped by them. And that perhaps is how Jesus felt many days. So therefore, he knows that he needed to spend time with his heavenly Father. And so he gets up and prays. I love the story that John Ortberg tells against himself on landing a job at the American megachurch Willow Creek in Chicago. He phoned his spiritual mentor, Dallas Willard, for advice. Willow Creek at the time was a church of 25,000. They had 450 people on staff. It was a huge job. John Ortberg was going to be the teaching pastor, and he phoned his mentor, Dallas Willard, and said, what do I need to do? And Dallas Willard came out with this memorable phrase over the phone. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg says, I wrote it down and said, got that, what's next? And Willard said, that's it. 
A few years later, John Ortberg started to mentor a younger pastor, teacher, author, guy called John Mark Comer, and that's why John Mark Comer wrote his book in the last couple of years entitled Eliminating the, uh, Ruthlessly Eliminating the Hurry of Life. Some people started to read that in the last two years. Some people had to read it during lockdown. And that gave it a different feel. Not one that some people were very comfortable with. The disciples look for Jesus, verse 36. Actually, it's much stronger than that. The word that's used is they hunted, they pursued Jesus like an animal. Everyone's looking for you. Not actually true. What the disciples are actually saying is, we were looking for you. We woke up. You weren't there. The whole town were gathered around the village. We realized that you'd gone. We weren't happy. That's a euphemism for what they were saying. And Jesus replies with this. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That's why I've come. And he deliberately turns his back on the popularity of Capernaum, the acclaim of the crowd and the adulation. It's a geographical statement that Jesus makes, but it's also a statement of mission. You see, Jesus isn't driven. He's called. And there's a huge difference between the two. Maybe you can think of somebody might be you, who actually driven would be a word that you would use to describe them. Maybe it's a word that people use to describe you. There is all the difference in the world between somebody who is driven and somebody who is called. They operate differently. Their motivations are very different. And in the long term, their fruit is very different for other people but also for themselves. And it leads us, secondly, to this paradox where we see that the untouchable is touched. A man with leprosy approaches Jesus. Again, those words, just like God prays, a man with leprosy approaching Jesus, those words don't go together because lepers didn't approach anybody. Lepers were told to keep at a distance. Lepers were told to keep at least 50 paces away from everybody else. They were told to keep away. Leprosy was used as a sort of generic term to describe over 70 skin infections in first century Palestine. It wasn't just what we would think of when we think of uh, the word leprosy. But this man risks everything because he has heard about Jesus. He risks humiliation. He risks stoning. He risks death in order to get to Jesus. And he asks, or he makes this statement, he, on his knees, he begs him, and he doesn't question the ability of Jesus. He questions the willingness of Jesus, verse 40. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus responds with compassion. The NIV translates that word as indignant. It doesn't actually mean he was angry. It means that he was compassionate. He was, uh, one translation is he snorted. He's filled with compassion deep within his inner being. And he reaches out and he touches the man. Now, Jesus could have just spoken a word because he does it elsewhere and says to the man, be healed. But maybe for the first time for decades, this man is touched. 
Jesus realizes that something else is going on, and he reaches out and he touches this man with leprosy, who perhaps no one has touched, as I said, for, for decades. And that's the means of healing. Remember when Princess Diana, in the early 1980s, um, went to an HIV AIDS hospice, Mild May, and she very publicly and deliberately held the hand of somebody with HIV and AIDS. It was a very powerful statement at a time when lots of people in our culture and our society, and if we're honest in the church, were very fearful of HIV and AIDS. But Princess Diana deliberately held the hand of an HIV or AIDS patient. And she did it repeatedly when she went to the hospices and went to visit wards with people who were either HIV positive or had developed full-blown AIDS at a time when the antiretroviral drugs were, were just coming out and we didn't know what was going to happen. She hugged people with HIV and AIDS. Made a deep impact on me when 15, 16 years later I went to Kenya and met people who were dying of AIDS. I always held their hands. When I went down to Waverley Care and, and met people in Edinburgh who had HIV, I always hugged them and shook their hands. And when I prayed with them, I always touched them. Because for years, people had shrunk back in the same way that in biblical times, they had reacted to people with leprosy. Jesus knew the power of touch. Diana knew the power, the symbolism of touch. Jesus touched the untouchable. Dallas Willard, again, that man who came up with that first piece of advice for John Ortberg, says this. We live from our heart, and the greatest need we have is the renovation of our heart, that spiritual place within us from which outlooks, choices, and actions come has been formed by a world away from God, and now it must be transformed. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That's what it means for you and I to follow Jesus this side of heaven. The renovation, the transformation of our hearts are why when we became a Christian, Jesus didn't take us straight to heaven. He could have done that. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, why didn't he take Josh Gilbert straight to heaven? It would have been so much easier. And there are lots of people who think, why didn't he take Dave Richards straight to heaven? But he works for the transformation, the renovation of our hearts. And it's hard. It's difficult. There are no shortcuts. If I'm honest, and this is confession time, I really struggle with this following Jesus and allowing him to reframe and renovate my heart. I really struggle with the spiritual practices and disciplines of, of putting time aside deliberately to pray and to read and to study. I think it is one of the reasons I joke about this. I've been ordained 30 years. I've been a Christ follower for over 40, and I genuinely believe that God knows I'm really bad at it, and I'd be even worse at it if I wasn't an ordained minister, because I have to read the Bible. I'm paid to read the Bible. I'm paid to pray. And God knows that if I wasn't paid to pray, I'd be even worse than I am now. 
but it is something that we are called to do, to spend time deliberately and intentionally listening to God and learning to live at God's speed. It is, in that phrase from Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in a slow direction. Rick Warren, who's just retired as the senior pastor at Saddleback Church, he came up with this four-phrase advice. Devote daily, withdraw weekly, meditate monthly, and abandon annually. Devote daily, withdraw weekly, which is what we're doing now, meditate monthly. That's why we give all the staff at P's and G's every month a prayer and study day. Guess who is the worst at taking their monthly prayer and study day? You can ask the rest of the staff. I am the worst at doing it. But also this idea of abandoning annually. Once a year, putting aside time deliberately, putting aside money deliberately, so that you can spend time listening to God, being with God consciously, intentionally. So, this morning... How is your heart? How is your soul? How is your spirit? How full does it feel? How empty does it feel? How weary does it feel? Are we allowing God to refashion, to recreate, to renovate our hearts so that we might live life at the speed that he wants us to live, which may well be faster for some of us, but slower for many of us than we think? And are we willing to deliberately put time aside to listen, to read, to pray, and allow the Spirit of God to change our hearts, to change our minds, and to fashion our souls in order that we might live life at God's speed. Libby.